The Koi Gig Pod. I wouldn't care if Megan Campbell didn't have hamstrings left. If yeah. she just stood on the sideline, she has to play. And subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. Sometimes uh, you get dealt a good hand. We had booked Jonathan Wilson to talk about Pep Guardiola and then overnight Unai Emery becomes the Aston Villa boss. So I get to ask you about that as well, Jonathan. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Um, I'm a Villa fan, so I'm pretty happy, actually, I think. Should I be happy? (laughs) Um, Yes, I think so. I mean, I think Emery is a very, very good coach. I think uh, what we saw of him in Arsenal, uh, I think A, wasn't probably as bad as it was made out to be. Uh, I think there was sort of a lot of mockery of him for, um, yeah, for, for his English, which is which is a ludicrous thing to complain about. Uh, I think perhaps people hadn't quite appreciated how difficult it, it, it was to replace Wenger. But you look at his record at, at Sevilla at Um Yeah, you know, he, he he is a, a very very good coach. I, I have two slight notes of caution. Uh, the first is to do with with him, which is that. All his success has come in Spain. That whenever he's left Spain, it hasn't really worked out for him. So PSG, I mean, yes, he won the league there, but I think he found that very, very difficult. Yeah, PSG is an extremely difficult club to manage. Uh, Arsenal, I guess, you put in the same bracket. Or, well, yeah, a, a difficult club to manage for different reasons. Uh, when he went to Spartak Moscow, it didn't really work out for him, him there. Again, I think there are mitigating circumstances. But the, the three attempts he's had outside of Spain haven't been great. So that's one note of caution. And the second is to do with the club, which is if they approached, as we're led to believe, uh, Pochettino and uh, Thomas Tuchel and possibly also Brendan Rodgers, I, I'm not seeing any sort of um, consistency, anything that links those four coaches. Um have you know that that feels like they're just going for famous people, uh, th- you know, three of whom uh, happen to be former PSG managers. So I I, I would worry that there's a, a sort of lack of a uh, overarching plan behind the scenes. But yeah, you know, maybe maybe they feel that that they're at a stage of a development where they need a coach to to lead that development after what I think was a pretty dismal failure of the Stephen Gerrard year. Yeah, it, it's funny you bring up the celebrity of those of that list and. Um, I was actually thinking that this is kind of a reaction to the Gerard failure. It's like somebody with vast experience versus somebody who was really at the start of their, you know, apart from the three and a half years or two and a half years at Rangers, like a, a very inexperienced coach who is very famous as a player. Here is somebody who is very experienced comparatively, who doesn't have a, a stellar playing career behind him. Um, and very uh, often clubs and international um, federations who don't really know what they're doing they go one way and then they whoosh, that didn't work so let's go the complete diametrically opposite um, which would suggest that it's not particularly visionary uh, or it's not part of an overarching plan yeah I mean I, I think that's true I think what what, what Gerard plus the, the you know those four names you just listed have in common is they are really well known so I, I'd um, you know what I'd like my club sporting director to be doing is saying, right, this is the sort of football we want to play. Here's my, I don't know, list of, I don't know, half a dozen players for every every position who we might be targeting. We're monitoring them, looking at their progress, looking at where their, 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 their contract situation is. And also have a short list of maybe half a dozen coaches who, 
you can turn to if things go wrong. And those coaches, I guess, ideally would not necessarily be household names. They'd be, oh, yeah, there's this guy who's doing brilliant stuff at, at Paderborn or, or, you know, doing great stuff in the Greek league or whatever. And, the, the, you know, the, 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 your expertise has allowed you to identify uh, a, a sort of cheap prospect, a cheap target. Um, but, you know, clearly there is a massive risk of that, that, that sort of figure. Uh, Emery, I, I think, is somebody worth, worth having a punt on because, as I say, I think, his, I think he's probably better than Villarreal. Uh, I think he's probably undervalued in, in this country, certainly. Um, and in, in terms of having success with with a club who's just outside the elite, so, you know, success in Spain wasn't with Real Madrid or Barcelona. It was with Sevilla and Villarreal. Um, the, you know, if you want somebody to, to take you into the Europa League, and his record in the Europa League is, is phenomenal. I mean, four wins plus another final. So I, I think there's a logic from that point of view, but but yeah, that 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 concern of what is the long term vision, and I think you've seen that with the signings. I mean, when, if you've signed Emi Buendia for what I, I think was a club record fee, and then almost immediately you're signing Felipe Coutinho, and you, uh, you know, can you play the two together? Was, did you just get Coutinho because he was famous and because he was available? Yes, uh, I, I think that that. That that has sort of dogged their uh, decision making over the last two or three years. Yeah, there's a lo- there's a lot of those players at the club who are kind of oh we've got two players in the same position who are equally not effective at the moment. Um, what what style of football does Emery play? Is he more flexible? Does he have a particular style that he always uses everywhere? Uh, well, I think what he's very very good at doing is uh, setting up his team to frustrate better teams. I think that's why his success has really come in those two-legged European competitions. I think he's he's exceptional at that. Um, I, I, he's never really put together a, you know, a phenomenally consistent run over a league season. So I think it, it is pretty... You know, they're not going to be massively on the front foot. They're not going to be massively attacking. I think his strength is in creating a team that's going to be solid and going to attack well on the break. Um, whether the squad is ideally suited for that, I'm... I'm not convinced. Um, I, I, I think the the issues at the centre of defence, I think, would test any coach. Um, he obviously has worked with with Carlos before, as and when he he returns to fitness. So yeah, he he he's from the slight, sort of slightly more controlled side of Spanish football rather than the the, the sort of free flowing uh, uber possession style. So don't expect. Um blood and thunder and lots of excitement in my football watching future well no but I think it will be a lot more fun than Gerard. so okay. you know well that wouldn't be uh, right. re- relative terms yeah we were due to talk last week uh, but the gremlins were in the system about uh, Pep Guardiola and this uh, body of evidence that's growing about um well, I, I don't know how to phrase this without kind of making it too black and white, but it does certainly seem as if sometimes, instead of picking his best players in his best positions, he decides to respond to what he expects the opposition to do, and then therefore hands the um, the opposition an opportunity to get into games where you sometimes feel like if he just plays his best players, it could be two 0 at half time and the game would largely be over. You've you've done loads of work. You've, you've written about this extensively. A week on, and now knowing everything we know about this Liverpool team. What 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 was in Pep's head in the build up to the Liverpool game? I mean, it's it's uh, I think in, in many ways it's just sort of the, the greatest narrative certainly on the pitch of, of football over the last sort of ten years or so that you have this brilliant coach who is habitually in charge of brilliant teams with brilliant players and you just sort of think well just go out and do it 
and they would win more often than not. And yet again and again and again in the biggest games, particularly in Europe, he he fails. Um, and, and you know, his record in Europe, given how successful he's been domestically, given the, the stature of club he's been in charge of, to only have won the Champions League twice, remarkable achievement as that is, um, it, it feels like he's falling short. And I, I think the fact that he had the success early, um, you know, win it, wins it in 2009, wins it in 2011, and you look at the way that that Barcelona team, which I think is probably the greatest team of my, my lifetime, the way they... They, they went out the Champions League in both 2010 and 2012. So 2010, the game against Mourinho's Inter, where they were 3-1 down from the first leg, and they, they win 1-0, but that's not enough. And they have 81% of the ball and all the shots in the world, and they can't score. Then almost even more freakish, the defeat to Chelsea in the semi-final in 2012. And it, it's like those two defeats, which, which you should be able to write off as freaks, but it's like they've sort of got in his head. And he sort of think, well, what caused them? Oh, it's because we got done on the break. So we, what we've got to do is we've got to stop ourselves getting done on the break. And then everything he does to prevent getting caught on the break somehow seems to make his team even more vulnerable while also diminishing the, the, the attacking qualities they have. So you saw that um, when, when Bayern lost to Atletico, uh, which was, was that also semi-final in 2016? Uh, and yes. Yeah, they were by far the better team, but somehow luck went against them. And the more that luck's gone against them, the unluckier he seems to get. And the more he seems to make these these tweaks and these changes. Um, so, yeah, I think the Lyon game is the one that you sort of think, yeah, it's Lyon. They were mid-table side in France. Just go out and batter them in the same way you'd batter, you know, uh, Villa or Brighton or, or whoever. Um, but switch to a back three and... Uh, they got done by Maxwell Corne. And then even Liverpool last week, I mean, Klopp has a better record than any other coach against Guardiola. Certainly of any coach who's played more than sort of four or five games against him. I think he's the only coach who's got a better than 50% record. And there's something in Klopp's football which clearly uh, Guardiola teams find hard to play against. But Liverpool this season have not been good. You sort of think well, it's an opportunity for City just to go out, just to play. And they almost certainly would overwhelm them in the way that, you know, Fulham on the opening day of the season, although it was only a 2 2 draw, Fulham had by far the better of that game. You think, well, if you have that, plus you have Holland, you will win. And yet he goes to that sort of hybrid formation, that sort of semi back three. He's got Cancelo playing as a right wing back rather than on the left, where he was far less effective. Uh, we'd seen the previous season that. Foden against James Milner. I mean, Milner should have been sent off last season. Foden absolutely destroyed him in that game. But rather than just letting Foden run at him, he plays him slightly deeper in a sort of semi-left wing-back role. And he, I, I think it's even if you can make a, a rational case for each of those tactical switches, I think the cumulative effect is, is twofold. So one is, it's just not the shape City are used to. And I accept that he makes tweaks all the time that we perhaps don't acknowledge. But that was a radical shift from that basic 4-3-3 template. So some of that um, familiarity, some of that naturalness, some of that cohesion has gone. But also, I think players have begun now to sort of think, oh, God, what's he done? He's done it again. And so I certainly heard uh, players talking about that in, in the aftermath of the Champions League final against Chelsea. And I heard Chelsea players saying the opposite. They looked at the City team sheet and thought, he's done it again. So overthinking maybe is a sort of an oversimplistic way of putting it. 
but there is this tendency to make changes that are probably needless uh, in 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 the biggest games. And I, I find it fascinating that he is like this 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 Greek tragic hero that he has this fatal flaw that undermines him over and over again. No. And, it, and the great thing is, where City could just be this sort of steamroller, charging through everything, winning everything all the time. The the humanness, that that that, that human frailty, that doubt, means that they don't. And and that I think is a from a dramatic, from a narrative point of view, is 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 fascinating. I think that that Foden example you bring up, Jonathan, is a perfect one. Like, you're, if you're a City fan, you're, you're watching that game, going, "Jesus, just let let the man get forward." I mean, as you said, he's he's tormented Milner in the past, so so not encouraging him to do the same was seemed a very strange one. And and look, this back three or de facto back three, as you say, like if it's set up to to stop City being so vulnerable in the counter attack, the reality is it just didn't work. So, do you think going forward, Pep is gonna? Uh, continue with it is he is he dogged and, and arrogant like that that he's going to say no no next time we're going we're going to try it again or do you think he'll he'll learn from his mistake uh, I, I don't think it's an arrogance i think if anything it's the opposite i think it's it's an insecurity that he knows that's yeah there's this brilliant yeah no no team is perfect the blanket is never quite big enough there's always a slight gap and in 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 guardiola teams it, it is that uh because they play the high line they and because they they hold possession so well that a direct ball, a quick ball over the top can can undo them. Um, now Guardiola previously has tried to counter that you know that that that, that line he came out with, which I, to be honest, it took me a long time to really sort of work out what he meant. And I think we're only really it's only really this season that I think I fully understood what he meant because we're now seeing the opposite. And that line is that when City win the ball unless there's a chance, a really obvious chance of an immediate counter-attack, he doesn't want his team to do what a Klopp team would do, which is just to surge forward and try and hit the opposition when when they're not quite set. He wants his team to control possession, control the ball. He says, have 15 passes to get set. Because if you attack before that, you're not ready for the opposition to counter against you. And that, that I think, is one of the reasons why, at its worst, Guardiola football can be a little bit sterile, a little bit tepid, because you don't have that sort of end-to-end nature you get with with a clock team, for instance, uh, that it is very much about control. But when you have Erling Haaland there, you can't play like that. Because if you look at the Community Shield, when Haaland was widely criticised, where I think he had what sixteen touches he had or something. But then you you, you look at you watch, watch it back and you look at how many runs he made where the ball wasn't being played quickly enough, and if, if the ball had just been knocked into space, you had an easy pass. Uh, for anybody, never mind the Kevin De Bruyne or Bernardo Silva, and the passes wasn't played because they were they were getting set, ready to prepare the structure in case they lost the ball and they were counted against. But Holland needs the ball quickly. That's one of his great strengths, and not to play to that would make no sense. So they are going a bit more direct, but I think what that does is it exacerbates that vulnerability that's already there. And you saw that the game against Newcastle when they were 3-1 down you saw it against Palace when they were 2-0 down and should have been 3-0 down um, that, 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 that that flaw that's always been there is is there but magnified now whether the extra goal threat of Holland is is worth that I think we'll only see in the last stages of, of Europe City scoring lots of goals is almost irrelevant they've been the top scorer in the Premier League for the last five seasons if Holland means they score 10% 20% more goals well, sort of so what What's important is in those in the Champions League quarterfinal, semi-final, final, does that increase vulnerability to a thing that they're already worried about 
is that counteracted by the fact they can also now score goals when not in control, when not necessarily play particularly well? He gave a relatively interesting interview to um, Jan Agafjortoft. Uh, there's 10 minutes of it on um, Fjortoft's Twitter, if anybody wants to watch it, where he didn't have the usual kind of... Um, slightly patronising attitude towards the questions he was interested in engaged in them and uh, I don't know if I believe him or not but he says that the first thing he does is he looks at his players and then he adapts the style of play to the players that he has available to him now you know, maybe on a week to week basis uh, or when he, when he arrived at Bayern Munich that might have been something he did and clearly at Man City he's been there long enough to they're all his players really but the the arrival of, of Haaland and um injecting him into the team the way you're speaking about it kind of forces a bit of a rethink there and and maybe it's true maybe maybe having Erling Haaland means he is going to ask his players not to have the 15 passes before they ping one long just to ping ping a few long and let's see what happens is th- is this where the evolution comes and and maybe he he himself becomes more automatic in his thinking as opposed to in himself so much uh, I, well, I don't think it's automatic. I think he he will look at Holland and he will say, right, we've got this extraordinary asset. How do we use him best? And we've seen, I think, an evolution. Uh, I mean, that goal, uh, was it the first goal against Brighton on Saturday? Was just Edison smacked it long? Like You wouldn't have seen... I mean, it's an absurd thing to say, to, to say you wouldn't have seen him doing that to Sergio Aguero because Aguero wouldn't have relished that type of pass he certainly wouldn't wouldn't have done it last season when he didn't really have a forward and he'd been pinging it yeah Foden playing as a false nine or something so I I think we are seeing them play more more direct Uh, the uh, the game against West Ham you saw how much more direct they were Um, I think City certainly in the Premier League or the early stages of the the Champions League they're never going to be that direct because teams very rarely come out against them so there's no space to hit with direct passing. You've, you've sort of got to manipulate the space a bit to to create that space. So, yeah, you know, Guardiola, I think, um, I think he has evolved. I think I think he's evolved a lot since well, since 2008. Uh, you know, I think that's been one of the fascinations is, is what you know, the last sort of decade or so is watching how he and Klopp have, have both evolved. They challenged each other and they they both learned from that. Um, so. Yeah, you you evolve from changes in football. You you evolve from the players you have available, and you evolve from what the opposition is doing against you. Um, I, I don't think there's ever been any doubt that Guardiola is. It's not that he has his one true method and applies that in all circumstances. Yeah, he's he's always tweaked it and changed it. The 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 danger is of a, the the thing that's un, undone him. I think in in certain Champions League games is that. He, he's done that too much. He almost hasn't trusted himself, hasn't trusted his process enough. Whereas maybe more relaxed coach would just sort of say, we're the best team in Europe, go out and win it. I'd love to see what would happen if he did that. Just like how those yeah. players would respond. It would be, it'd be, uh, look, maybe maybe he gets done on a counter-attack in that game and we're all like, oh, that's, uh, you're, you are well, cursed. The, the, the time he sort of did that was when Bayern went to Barcelona in 2015 and he sort of, I, I, you know, it was almost like the logic was nothing we can do will stop Lionel Messi so let's just go for it let, let, let's press really hard let's press really high I don't know if you remember that game but it, it was I think it was still nil-nil after about 75 minutes and Barca went on to win 3-0 because Bayern were absolutely shattered but that first 20 minutes half an hour Barcelona could have been 4 or 5 nil up and I think he's he's also got that warning in his mind that if we are too loose that's what can happen mm. and I also just think that the person he is if he 
yeah, all the success he's had, everything, even as a player, has been through analysis. It's been thinking. You know, as a player, he wasn't naturally a great player. He was a great mental player. You know, he, he, he tactically, he was a great player. Um, technically, he was a very good player, but as, as tactically, he was a great player. And, and if he didn't do the research, if he didn't make those little tweaks and make, make those little changes, and then it failed... I, I think that he he would really feel like he'd he'd let himself down. I, I mean, the, the thing that um, I'm always conscious of with this is: do you remember after the Bielsa and the Spygate furore when he gave, when Bielsa gave that two hour press conference, and somebody I think asked the question, "Why do you need to do all this research in, into the opposition when yeah you have bundles of data and bundles of research that you can just yeah you subscribe to." To, to some service and just download it. And Bielsa said something like, uh, I have to look under every rock, even though I know it is useless, because if I didn't, I wouldn't be true to myself and I would never forgive myself. And I wonder if there's something in, in similarly neurotic about Guardiola that he he feels that, that his job is to investigate every permutation, to investigate every combination, to, to analyse everything. If he doesn't do that, if he did just sort of say, go out and play... That, that he would be letting down the club, letting himself down professionally. Um, Jonathan, I know you, you wrote a match report on the, the Chelsea United game at the weekend, and which probably leads me to believe you're in the press box there with a close vantage point in Stafford Bridge to, to the two managers. What, what were your main takeaways from, from that game? And, and I guess seeing Eric Ten Hag up close, he's uh, reportedly sitting down with his, uh, his, his number seven, Cristiano Ronaldo, today for, for peace talks. But... Um, he certainly wasn't holding back with the, with, with those uh, celebrations late in the game with, with Casemiro's goal, but a fascinating game to be at, I, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad I was doing the follow-up, not the runner, because I think that would have been an incredibly difficult game to write on live, because it was one of those matches where you, you couldn't sort of say, oh, this is just rubbish, and, and sort of slag the game off and say, this is really boring, nothing's happened. It was constantly intriguing, but it was very difficult to know which way it was going to go. So... One of the great things with the, the where the where the press box is at Stamford Bridge, uh, you're right behind the away dugout. So um, when uh, Fred came on, what was that 51 minutes, something like that? What was fascinating was just how much information he was given before he came on. Ten Hag had this magnetic magnetic tactics board um, and was you know, clearly it was, must have been a good sort of minute minute and a half of instructions. Then there was one of the the younger backroom staff. Uh, who, who had a, an iPad. I, I couldn't actually see what was on the iPad, so it was very difficult to know what he was being shown. Um, but there must have been a good, I reckon, sort of three to four minutes of tactical instruction to Fred before he went on. And so the fact that um, you saw Chelsea change shape from a back three to, to that midfield diamond uh, after, what was that, about 35 minutes, the, the, the Potter changed that. Mm. And you saw the, the, the pattern of a game change that... United, having been pretty dominant, suddenly were forced back 10 or 15 yards. And then, I guess, Ten Hag was just seeing how the beginning of the second half played out before he made the change. And and they went to a diamond as well to, to, to match it up. So, you know, it was, it, was, um, it was one of those games where you really saw uh, coaches making tactical changes and, and you saw the impact of that straight away. So... I, 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 I mean, I, th- yeah, I think Chelsea obviously will be frustrated to concede that late, but a draw was probably right. And I think you saw just just how high a level both those coaches are uh, are working at. 
And the thing that's impressive with Ten Hag has been just how how steely he's been. There was a moment in that Brentford game when they lost 4-0, when he looked a bit isolated and looked a bit lost on the touchline. And then the fact that the following day, even if it was only symbolic, having the players in doing that punitive 13k run because they ran 13k less than Brentford. And now you look at him in press conferences and there is just that glint of something slightly dangerous and slightly unhinged in, in his eye. <laughs> and I think you probably have to have that to face Dan Ronaldo. And he has done that. And... He's got all the cards now. You know, he, he's, he's effectively won that battle. It, it can't go any other way now. He's, he's managed to take a situation where uh, all of Ronaldo's fans in the media, and there's loads of them, who are week in, week out at the start of this, oh, he needs to be in the team, what a great goal scorer, what a great presence around the place. Suddenly, Ronaldo is diffident, obstreperous, egotistical, selfish, all these things that he was at the start, but now everybody is saying it. It's, um, you know, if you were to stand back, cause, cause I, I thought it was a ludicrous thing to say I couldn't put him on to humiliate him in the derby. Uh, but actually he was happy to put him on for two minutes at the end of the Spurs game so he was playing a long game and uh, he seems to have won it very hands down yeah I mean if he's if he's been playing a game it might, it might just be that he did what he thought was right you know that he he wanted Ronaldo on that last sort of, well, two minutes plus injury time just to hold the ball up um, give him an outlet but it, it's worked out very very well for him uh, and I guess maybe if, he, if, if this was some sort of conscious plan that was exactly the right time to do it after United's best performance in, I don't know, certainly well over a year. Uh, and I think that's the other thing. It's, it's not just Ronaldo's behaviour. It's the fact that United now are actually playing good football again. That that that, that win against Spurs, they were, they were incredibly impressive. The first half hour against Chelsea, they were, they were well on top. Um, a 1-1 draw to Stamford Bridge is a, is a good result. In the, you know, it, was a, it was a high level of game. So I think the fact that there is obvious progress there uh, it's you know, now's the time to. I mean, then the progress has come because Ronaldo's not on the team, and when he does play, as he did against Newcastle, um, as he has in a couple of Europa League games, they've looked pretty flat. They've lacked that that fluency and mobility up front, so that even when Rashford is missing chances, uh, his movement is you know, makes United function better. And I think that I mean, I think that was always true, but I think it's become really obvious now. Jonathan, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. That was great. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave. Magnificent mode.